0: There are so many choice moments through your, your explanation here where you could replace what you're saying with frog, and it would just be hilarious. Like he goes down into <laughs> Hades with his slave frog, and he and his slave frog take turns dressing up as frogs. Is that where this is going? or Episode 10 was very significant for many reasons. However, I think we have to admit that episode 13 of Station 13, I mean, that's... That's, uh, I think that deserves a a golf clap. Station
1: 13, episode 13, it's actually more significant than you might realize. How so? Because, yes, it has a number in common with the name of this podcast, but I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we record every two weeks and there are 52 weeks in a year. Right. Thus there are 26 fortnights in a year. Right. Which is how many we would record in a year, so the fact that we're on station 13 episode 13 now means that we've been doing this for six months this is the exact half year mark wow it
0: doesn't seem like six months a lot's happened for me over this past six months so for me it actually does feel like six months since we started actually
1: <laughs> right yeah yeah you're like <laughs> you're in such a different position <laughs> yeah in uh, both physically speaking and Uh, mentally that's right I mean when (laughs) spiritually yeah when we when we first started this
0: I was I was leaning over my MacBook Pro somewhere in West Japan in a hot non-air-conditioned room in the middle of the uh, Japanese monsoon when we first started it so I was like sweating and there was uh, I remember I had to be very careful with the intensity of the only source of relief that i had from the climate which was this little electric fan sitting on the floor Mm. and uh there were frogs outside do you remember me talking about the frogs oh
1: yeah the frogs yeah
0: yeah so actually now i've i've gone from basically more or less like indoor camping which is how i would describe living in most japanese houses because their construction is very very lightweight obviously to deal with the earthquakes that they have in japan so you really really Intimate with the weather outside. If it's hot outside, it's going to be hot inside. If it's cold outside, it's cold inside. So if it's raining outside, you definitely know about it. However, I've gone six months later now to here in Sweden where the architecture is very solid. And, you know, I'm sitting behind a triple glazed window here, surrounded by insulated bricks and, of course, acoustic paneling, as I mentioned last episode. And I have absolutely no idea what the weather is outside now. Actually, this evening I went out, I decided I might go for a walk after dinner. Mm. Got my pants on and, you know, because i working at home, that means work uniform tends to be tracksuit pants. So uh, I uh, put on some proper pants and shoes and got my jacket out and said, right, I'm going for a walk by, open the door and it's pouring with rain and I had no idea. <laughs> so I've gone from being very, very close to the weather to being somewhat distant from it. Mm. So anyway, uh, we have a, a little bit of follow-up from... From last
1: episode? We do. Some more follow up on, on the security stuff. We've kind of run a bit long on, on the Facebook model security thing for the last couple of episodes, so I'll keep it short. But the friend of mine that I mentioned once before, who is somewhat more knowledgeable than I am about these security related matters, was listening to what we were saying and what Charlie posted on the Reddit right. about the way that shops track you. And he said that he was aware that this happened. But that he didn't mind, which was an interesting sort of thing, because mm. I think for most of us coming in without the knowledge, it's a bit of a shock. We're like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a good point. I'd never thought of that. Oh, that's a bit creepy. But he said, well, actually, as, as I was saying last time, the important thing you have to do is determine your own threat model and also what you're willing to live with in terms of your uh, privacy. Because I guess there's a distinction between privacy and security here. But Mm. in terms of privacy, you know, you decide your own comfort level. And he said, well, he said he didn't mind so much that they were collecting this aggregate data about movement through the shop. Because what they're not doing is seeing when you go to a shelf and you pick a book up off the shelf and read a few pages and put it down. Mm. They're not tracking which book you picked up or how many pages you read or anything like that. Right. Right. They're just seeing an overview of your route through the shop. So, you know, he said, well, you know, I can live with that, which I thought was fair enough and kind of interesting. Funny enough, the new Amazon bookstores, of course, do base some of their stuff on tracking exactly which pages you've read out of a book, because as we mentioned in the episode where we talked about that, they have a section in the Amazon bookstore, which is pe- books that have been completed within three days by readers reading it on the Kindle. Right which they call page tenors. So that's that, That's another interesting angle on that. Uh, the, the one other thing that I wanted to put a link in the show notes, I won't talk about it now, but there's a good overview about the crack Wi-Fi hack mm. uh, or Wi-Fi exploit from Kudelsky Security. And what I liked about this page is that it's very short. Right. It just tells you sort of the nuts and bolts of the problem and how it's being dealt with. It assumes that you understand a lot of the buzzwords and things, so it's not written to be approachable to the layman necessarily. Mm. But if you have a little bit of a background in just how networks work and things like that, then it's a good thing to just read to get a an overview of the situation. And then anything you don't understand, you can sort of look up afterwards. Mm. So that's good. I'll, I'll stick a link in the show notes. Okay. Okay, and then, then the other thing that we talked about, of course was science fiction
0: yeah so we actually uh last last episode was was riddled with factual inconsistencies and uh two of those well actually it was not really a factual inconsistency but we couldn't remember the name of the boy character in Terminator 2 who turns out to be
1: so embarrassing I I was immediately afterwards I listened back to the audio and I was thinking what are you talking about it's John Connor—it's the whole basis of the movie. That's right. He's not the boy. He's not a random boy. Right. He's John bloody Connor. <laughs> what? Uh, in in my defence, and this is not much of a defence, but in my defence, I wasn't really listening. <laughs> right. I already had it. I somehow I already had in mind what you were going to say next, which turned out to be wrong. Right. Because I thought you were going to mention the c- the scene where the terminator calls john connor's mother foster mother right and it's the the new the t1000 that is pretending to be her right and he you know he checks the name of the dog and then says the wrong name to to find out whether it's really her or not i thought you were going to reference that scene and so i was ready to sort of just skip over it and talk about that scene and i didn't really stop and think hang on he's talking about john connor (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, For some reason I remember the name Edward Furlong Which of course is the name of the, the actor who played John Connor but Right,
1: which I never was even really aware of <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, strange um, The other rather embarrassing uh, error that I made last time In talking about supposedly my favourite movie of all time uh, Which is the original Tron movie I said that it was from 1984 Actually two years earlier, 1982
1: I... I think that's fine. I don't think you need to be embarrassed about that.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the earlier that, you know, I mean, 1984 and 1982, if you were around in the 80s, I was, and I was pretty young, but somehow 1984 was very different from 1982. So, well, yeah.
1: I mean, there is one crucial difference of course between 1984 and 1982 is that the- a, a vast improvement in the state of the world between those two dates.
0: That's uh Return of the Jedi hadn't come out yet? No. No,
1: I hadn't. Ah.
0: The- <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> I (laughs) yeah, actually, sometimes I forget that I'm actually older than you. That's, I better, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I'm not not doing... There's there's your reminder. Yeah, not doing too well, am I? I
1: think in an episode where we both forgot the name of John Connor, you can forgive yourself getting the release date of Tron wrong by two years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We've got bigger problems to worry about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, 82, 84, I remember... So I was in primary school and uh, the big thing was, uh, did we talk about this before? I think we did, didn't we? But I th- the big thing was marbles. Yeah, that's right. We did talk about we it. We had a whole
1: show about marbles. Marbles, yeah. We named yeah. the episode after.
0: Paper planes, yo-yos. Uh, yeah. So those were the mm. days. Anyway, 1982, not 1984.
1: Yeah. Oh, and one more link, which I'll put in the show notes and... I also won't talk in detail about now because I take it... You still haven't seen the new Blade Runner film, have you?
0: No, I have not. And I, you know, as the father of a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, I I don't think I'm going to be seeing it anytime soon.
1: Okay, so I I won't talk in, in too much detail about it. But for those people that have seen it, I'll put a link in the show notes. There was this really interesting article. Obviously, I have a sort of strange skew at the moment towards the classics. But there's an interesting article I saw on the Adelon site, hmm. and it gave an analysis of Blade Runner 2049 from a classical perspective, hmm. which drew parallels with certain famous classical myths and, and literature, mainly the Trojan horse, but also Oedipus Rex, which is very famous, and also Pygmalion statue Galatea, which is less famous. Hmm. They're not trying to make the claim that the film is based on these stories they're just noticing sort of certain similarities and similar themes and using that as a new sort of perspective to understand the film Mm. which is an interesting thing to to do whether the director intended it or not it also included uh, some feminist critique of the film which i hadn't considered Mm. that's not the main thrust of the piece but it's also sort of interesting there's some interesting insights there Mm. and the main thing is that the title of this article was, Do Androids Dream of Electric Greeks? Right. Excellent headlining there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So very good title and very good article to go with it. So I'll uh, link in the show notes.
0: Fantastic. One thing that's happened recently here in Sweden is we have come out of daylight saving time.
1: Ah, yes. You're, You're a week earlier than us. America's... I wish they'd sort of get these things aligned because for one week only, the difference between the time zones is different, right? You're a bit closer to us than usual.
0: Yeah. Is it just me or do you find daylight saving time very bizarre? I suppose it's practical and I grew up in a place where there was daylight saving and you know, there was, it was always fun in the family being the official clock setter on the, on the day <laughs> that the, the time changed and having to run around these days, actually, you know, there's. I figure there's probably less clocks to worry about these days because a lot of people use their phones, which do all that automatically in their computers, right. of course.
1: These days, I frequently don't even realize that it's happened because yeah. I have an alarm set on my phone. The phone automatically overnight adjusts the time right. and turns on the alarm when when it's appropriate and I look at the time it's the same time it always is right I get up I go to work I might think oh I'm a bit tired this morning or oh I rested very well last night I feel quite fit and ready to go but I don't I don't even notice and then I get like halfway through the day and I see an article about it like, oh that's what happened
0: yeah I knew that daylight saving was around this time but that's how I knew that it was last week on the day that it actually changed just because uh, I noticed that my phone was one hour out of sync with everything else in the house. <laughs> and I thought, well, then I, right. s- that I suddenly right. realized. But it's amazing um, the difference that one hour extra a day can make. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm getting older. Maybe it's a sign of, you know, parenthood, especially because it was on a weekend. You know, it was, it's a day that I would be spending with my children. Right. Just one extra hour in the day. It, it actually really felt apparently like one extra hour to the day. Everything sort of dragged on a little bit longer. Oh, it's only two thirty. When you think, <laughs> you know, when you think it should, it feels like it should be three thirty or four thirty. Or mm. I'm kind of hungry. Isn't it dinner time yet? No, it's not. It's only you know four thirty or whatever. Right. It was quite interesting actually. How you know the difference that just one hour can make, and uh, I guess makes sense really. You know, when you go through your life, living every day, being used to having. A certain amount of time from when you wake up to when you go to sleep. Having that suddenly extended is kind of almost like a a jet lag kind of experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, yes, very minor jet lag, but it it is as if you've traveled from the UK to, or France, Mm. I suppose. They're the next time zone across, aren't they? Which isn't that far.
0: Yeah. You know, of course, being from Adelaide, we are privileged to have our own time zone. We're one of the odd ones which is bumped by 30 minutes. Oh,
1: no, you're not one of those. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you know, programmers hate you. Oh, really? Like, there's there's n- almost nothing so frustrating in this world as trying to be a programmer dealing with right. time zones. And there are all sorts of problems with time zones. And one of them yeah. is you people. Half an hour. What are you doing?
0: I know. It's, we're, <laughs> we're also very privileged because, you know, when you look at lists of uh, GMT time and you look at, you know, sort of select your time zone, you, you go through the very glamorous choices like New York and Paris and London and uh, Los Angeles and, you know, these very glamorous places and right. Hong Kong and Tokyo and
1: Adelaide. <laughs> where, Adelaide, where, where, there it is. Adelaide. But where is it? It's not more glamorous than Adelaide. Yeah, you've got you've got the Grenfell Tower. Or
0: at uh, delayed, get it? See, at delayed, delayed, d- delayed. Oh, it's
1: delayed, Yeah, by half. yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. it's good. Yeah.
0: That's not very good. But actually, Australia is actually a very funny one for time zones because I'm not going to try and remember exactly how many time zones it has, but I think it's something on the order of five. Really? Well, it's big. I mean, it's it's very big, Australia. I'm sure you're aware of this. Yeah. It, it's. Uh, I think it's It's about five. Like generally in Australia, you only really think of it as being three. You know, you've got Perth time. Well, I guess being from Adelaide, right. you have know, Perth time, South Australian time, and then time on the eastern seaboard. But I think actually if you look it up, it's actually something like five. Right. Which yeah. is kind of bizarre because I know that I think South Australia, which is where Adelaide is, yeah, has its own 30-minute time zone, whereas the state or the territory – directly north of it, and right. more or less on the same longitude, which is called the Northern Territory, yeah. is a different time zone, which is really weird. Time zones are weird. I
1: mean, have you have you seen a map of time zones plotted across like a yeah, world it's,
0: map? I have. It's kind of jagged. Right.
1: It's <laughs> nonsense.
0: <laughs> so it's interesting to know actually how, you know, the history, you know, what I guess there must have been at some stage some kind of, referendum that takes place in all these parts of the world you can see like various for example china china is is a huge huge country and yet there's a very quaintly cultural feeling to the fact that they've opted to have one time zone for their entire country right right which is amazing because it's a it is a really huge country and that means that people way out on the west side of china must have some some pretty funky sunrise
1: and sunset times I'd imagine. Right. Yeah, I mean they get pretty offset, but it does it you can also sort of see it kind of makes sense for a country like China that they would be like, no, we're going to unify everything. Right. I mean and the other extreme is before GMT. I mean not not so long ago. I think it's I don't know if it was mid or late 19th century that these time zones got a bit more organized. Mm. But certainly in the in the age of steam in well, you know when trains were first becoming a thing hmm. there were time zones within the uk they weren't zones like cities pretty much set their own times right. i think so you would get on a train from london to bristol and you would have to change your watch when you got in like the the clock at the train station would show a different time right because bristol had a different time greenwich mean time was sort of I think invented to unify these time zones in the UK and then because at that time, you know, the sun never set on the British Empire, as they used to say, hmm. they then with Greenwich mean time at the center, they then sort of decided on a, a unified time around the British Empire. And I don't know how that then went to to other countries, whether that was by agreement or by following it or or what the story is. But hmm. yeah. I don't know, and, I, and I'm not trying to claim that time zones are a British invention because I have no idea. But I do know that originally they weren't even a thing within the UK. Like we didn't—the notion that everywhere in the UK is the same time—is a relatively modern notion. Hmm. Let alone everywhere in China. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it it is fascinating, isn't it? You know, it's a, such a simple thing. I am a bit curious why they need daylight saving in Sweden, because, you know, when you get into the winter, the sun is coming up at, you know, like 10 o'clock and going down at like three o'clock anyway. So, I mean, is it, if if that was 11 o'clock and four o'clock, is that such a, you know, huge difference when it's such a short amount of time that you're getting daylight anyway?
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know if there's a European agreement involved here as well, hmm. because there is a European agreement involved with time zones. Like I think, the sort of central european time is they've agreed that they're going to have daylight savings at the same time like that's why your daylight savings happened at the same time as in the UK and in the rest of europe right. yeah, that, and that is correct. on purpose mm. whereas america is i don't know it's always a week out but it's always you know it's usually somewhat offset from europe right so maybe i don't know but maybe european countries have to have daylight savings time mm. there are movements to abolish it like certainly in the UK, in the US as well, I'm sure other countries, there are movements to do away with it Mm. because people think that it's not useful anymore, that it was more useful when our society was more agricultural. Right. It still is, I think, mainly for the farmers that it exists. Mm. But I don't know. Having lived in Japan, which doesn't have daylight savings time, it never puts its clock back or forward. Right. Before I moved there... I had heard of these movements to do away with it and I thought eh, it's a bit of a pain but it doesn't seem worth the effort mm. you know it's fine like I don't feel particularly attached to it but whatever I turn my cot back once a year and I turn it forward once a year but then living for seven years in a country that doesn't have it and just not thinking about it at all mm. and then moving to America. And suddenly being faced with it again. It just seems like really archaic all of a sudden.
0: I know what you mean. And also exciting at the same time. You know, there's just like I last week, wow, there's like one extra hour in the day. That's great. Right. And also my son was was very amused by it because this is the first time he's ever experienced daylight saving and, and, you know, time changing like this. Right. Yeah, interesting. Now I wanted to, I'm very excited. I wanted to share with you this episode's science tip It's it's a little bit technical, but it's such a such an elegant solution to a problem using some very basic um, electronics. This is to do with uh, an audio problem that I was having. Right. I'm really excited to explain it to you. So this is um it's exciting because it's just so simple. So here we go. In this room that I'm currently sitting in, previously I did not have a ground connection. So the PowerPoints were old-style Swedish PowerPoints that actually were not grounded to anything. Mm. And because I run in here, I run you know, two computers and some monitors and uh, some fairly power-hungry speakers, I decided to have a friend come along to fit a ground line, which actually turned out to be very simple. He just took off the, the plug, and actually there was a ground wire behind the PowerPoint it just wasn't connected to anything because the. Oh,
1: uh, yeah. I think that is quite common. Yeah. But they, I think they probably have to install it sort of ready when they're building a yeah. the house, but not necessarily to yeah. expose Yeah. So it. The,
0: the actual plug itself was very old and that's why it didn't accept a, a ground line. But uh, there was one there. So it was just a simple matter of wiring up a new modern PowerPoint with all three wires into it. So I had a ground connection, which is great. And I immediately discovered that I was getting very loud buzzing noises coming through the speakers. This is otherwise known as a ground loop. Mm. And it's caused basically by, uh, this isn't the the fun bit that I want to explain because I don't really understand this that well, but it's funny because, you know, the, the main things that are grounded in this room are the monitors, the displays, that is, uh, and the my speakers and the computer itself. And right. you get this, some people may have experienced this uh, where if you move the mouse, you can actually hear it through the
1: speakers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah
0: and if you if the hard drive does something, you can you can very audibly hear it coming through the speakers. Hmm. And that's exactly what was happening. And this is a ground loop. And apparently, I don't really understand the the physics behind this, but apparently it's uh, caused by devices that are grounded with different potentials, and that creates a loop of some sort. I don't really know. Maybe somebody can explain that to us on our Station 13 Reddit. Anyway, the solution to a ground loop, it's often difficult to pinpoint where the interference is coming from and why it's happening. There are a number of things that you can do. You can try and plug your your different grounded pieces of equipment into the same power board if they were not in the same power board. So it's all going through the same ground line. Mm. The cause for my issue was much more simple. And that was that... I have been using unbalanced cables to go between my audio interface and the speakers.
1: Unbalanced cables. What does that mean?
0: So this is this is really cool. Danny, this is really cool. So just to cut to the chase, I uh, went out and bought some balanced cables connected to the speakers. And now I have blissful silence and blissful, blissful grounded silence at that, which is oh. extra safe, extra silent. Anyway. Balanced cables. So I guess the two basic kinds of cables for audio that most people will be familiar with is the typical guitar instrument cable style, which is otherwise known as a quarter inch jack. Right. And the other is a microphone cable, which has a male end and a female end. So the two ends of it are different. And it has three prongs inside it instead of, you know, one big right. one big thing that you stick into a hole. Yeah,
1: the, the three thick rounded sort of prongs, right? right.
0: So that, the microphone cable, that is a balanced cable. Mm-hmm. And the way that it works is really simple and ingenious. It's all to do with phase cancellation. So when you have two signals, mm-hmm. one with the phase inverted, mm-hmm. it's just like saying plus one, add it onto minus one. Right, right. And you get zero. And you get a flat, yeah. Uh, so if you have, for example, a sine wave and then you flip it upside down, flip the phase upside down and then you add it back to the original, right. you get nothing. Right. And uh, that's called phase cancellation. That's
1: how noise-cancelling headphones work as well, isn't exactly. it? Exactly.
0: Right. Yeah, so the noise-cancelling headphones and the Apache helicopter as well.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's clever.
0: Yeah, yeah it's uh, they have some very, very amazing processes in there that can um, output a more or less instantaneously can output a phase inverted signal of the ambient sound around them in order to mm. make it sound a little bit like the background noise is being cancelled out anyway balanced cables so the way that it works there are three prongs one is an earth a ground line but the other two are active now these two send the signal down one and then down the other one is an inverted version of that same signal right and at the receiving end yeah the equipment on the receiving end of the signal will take the normal signal and it will take the inverted the phase reversed polarity reversed signal and flip it Mm -hmm. and add them together to get a very strong version of the original signal
1: is that just like double amplification
0: yeah right now the cool part is that as the signal travels from the source to the destination, along the wire, yeah. it picks up interference, right? It picks up noise. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, you've probably already picked this up. Okay,
1: I think I can see where you're going with this.
0: Yeah. So the, the cool part is that both wires inside the, the balanced cable will pick up the same interference. So that means when it gets to the destination and one of those, the inverted one, is flipped around, mm the original signal comes back twice as strong. And the noise gets cancelled out. Exactly. Both cab- cables have exactly the same noise running because they both get the same interference. But in phase, even though the out of phase one, it it's actually causes the, when it flips it around at the destination, Yeah, the reverse polarity version now contains an out of phase version of the noise that came down the line. Of the noise, Yeah.
1: Oh, that is clever. Yeah,
0: and that gets added back onto the in-phase version of the noise that came down the line from the other wire. And the result is you get a nice strong signal from the source and all of the noise completely cancelled out.
1: Right, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Science on station 13. Yeah. So, very very basic science, I'm sure, but... I've never really thought about it before.
0: Yeah, I, I was uh, when I plugged these balanced cables in, and everything was nice and quiet. I was so happy that I thought, "Well, this is this is like magic. How is it that these things actually work?" And that's how they work. And that's also the reason why uh, microphone cables. One of the reasons that they are, may uh, the standard is balanced cabling is uh, uh, is for that. The other reason, of course, is that microphone cables can therefore run a lot longer. You can have much longer microphone cables without any degradation in the signal
1: right right because uh, the noise will be cancelled out and the signal will be amplified
0: yes so there you go science in action
1: there are two new members to the right household i'm going to send you a picture of them now okay ah uh, look at that look at that this is hot off the press as well i, do, I have yet to post this on social Look media at those guys but we have some kittens in our house adorable they're called well we haven't 100 percent settled on the name but we seem to be settling on natsu and fuyu <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> you should probably explain what natsu and fuyu are for our listeners who don't speak japanese uh,
1: so yes well i will see about putting this picture up on the interwebs in case there were not enough cat pictures on the internet and uh, posting it somewhere so i can put it in the show notes maybe
0: on our reddit there denny i i uh, don't think i've ever seen cats on reddit before no
1: that'll be a new we might be breaking new ground here so natsu and hu are brothers they're litter mates and they seem to be some sort of siamese maybe tabby hmm. crossbreed mix It's difficult to say because, you know, we got them from a shelter and the shelter just sort of, somebody just found them on the street when they were like a few days old and handed them in. So nobody knows the history or the mother or anything like that. But we can tell that one of them, that they are probably of Siamese stock because one of them looks like a Siamese cat, right? It's white with dark points at the end of of his tail and Hmm. paws. And a little bit on his face. And the other one just looks like a normal tabby cat. Completely Hmm. not like a Siamese at all. But because they're brothers, that's where the link can be made. And so uh, Natsu and Huyu mean summer and winter respectively. So the siamese looking one, the white one, is obviously winter. And then the other one is summer. Gorgeous. We went to the shelter last weekend. So actually the weekend before last, we were down in Campbell. And we'd gone down... For the farmer's market but the farmer's market wasn't on that week because it was Oktoberfest. so there was like a special event and they'd close the whole street and they had all sorts of stores mm. and one of the stalls there was this animal shelter and we've been talking on and off about maybe getting a cat for a long time mm. so this animal shelter had a stall they had a couple of cats there that you could play with and we thought oh maybe we should go and visit the shelter you know just to just to have a look and start to think about what this would entail Hmm. if we decided to to go ahead with it dangerous yes so we went last saturday and we spent most of the afternoon there we were there for hours playing with all these different cats and went home decided to sleep on it but we had already met these two and and really liked them and the next day we went back again And we were only, you know, we weren't originally planning on getting any cat. We were just going to look. But if we were going to get a cat, we were only planning on getting one. Right. But because these two were brothers and had been together their whole life and were obviously so happy and comfortable in each other's company, it seemed a shame to tear them apart. Mm. So we ended up taking both of them. And I think that's actually turned out for the best because we're new to cats. We haven't had cats before, neither of us. Oh, really? Yeah. So this is, this is all new to us. And the good thing about having two is that they can entertain each other. Right. So you might think that it would be more effort to have two, right? But it actually turns out to be quite a lot less effort because you can just leave them to their own devices and they'll have fun together. Mm. Whereas if you've got one, then you've got to be playing with it. You know, especially when they're kittens, they've got a lot of energy and you've got to play with them quite a lot so they can kind of exhaust all that energy. Right. So it's turned out Quite well having two, and it's been very fun, nice playing with them. So you were talking about how just an hour makes a lot of difference, but I've been getting up very early all this week, so I can have some time playing with the kittens before I go to work. So what happens when uh, both of you are out? Uh, So at the moment, the kittens are confined to the guest bathroom. Oh, okay. The recommendation is that when you first get a cat, I think any cat, but especially kittens... You start off with just one room and you let them become totally comfortable and happy in that room. Mm. And then you slowly, over the course of about a week to 10 days, introduce them to the rest of the house. Mm. So the first day they came in that day and overnight they were in the bathroom. And the second day we took them out into the living room for an hour and then put them back in the bathroom. Mm. And then yesterday and today, I think they they're getting... Two hours or so hmm. out in the living room. What's the reason for that? Is
0: it that it's too overstimulating, or something? Or why why would that be recommended? It's
1: partly because it's too overstimulating, and partly because you want to give them a place that they know is safe, that they can always go back to, and they won't get lost going back to. Oh, okay. And that's both for them to feel safe and for them to have a nice place that they, you know, feel comfortable in. And also for the more practical reason of to make sure they know where the toilet is. Oh, I see. Because if you introduce them to the whole house at once, they might sort of go exploring far afield and then kind of forget where they are and not know how to get back Mm. to, you know, where the litter box is. And then you're in trouble. So I see. the idea is to slowly introduce them to the rest of the house so that they kind of learn the layout of the place as they go mm. and they become comfortable with the whole place that way as well.
0: That's interesting that uh, cats should need yeah because I, I, my, my experience we used to have a cat in Australia mm. it wasn't a kitten it came to us uh, it, was a, it was a wild cat that kept on hanging around our house right and um, we started to give it food and sort of it, it gradually became sort of domesticated through that so there was never any issue with it being inside or outside or or, you know that cat could definitely take care of itself (laughs) right but it's interesting the amount of uh i guess parenting and nurturing it makes sense really i mean a a little young little kitten like that would there's no reason for it to understand these things i guess but uh right that's uh rather surprising it's interesting it's
1: also very disconcerting for them changing environment so right and the whole journey as well unlike dogs who quite often enjoy being in the car and going out to exciting new places Mm. cats find the whole thing very disconcerting and uncomfortable being put in their little carrier thing and having to stay cooped up in there in the car Mm you know, for the journey and just the bumping and and everything of the ride. Right. And then when you open the case, they're in a completely different environment with different smells and different sounds and a different layout than they used to. Right. And the whole thing is quite disconcerting for them. So you want to sort of give them some time to get comfortable and realize that this new place is is safe and they can be happy there. Mm. Is that what happened to you? Like
0: when you opened the the carrier when you got home, were they reluctant to come out?
1: Well, ours actually... We're not so bad. Like, this is partly things I've been reading on the internet. I'm trying to sort of do my research properly so that we know what we're doing. I don't want to be, you know, a lot of irresponsible owners that just buy the thing because it's cute and then have no idea how to look after them, which is, Hmm. is the case for me as well, but I'm trying to sort of rectify that. Ours are great, though, because especially Natsu is so sort of adventurous and... Uh, likes exploring so they came out quite cautiously and we left them to their own devices in the room for an hour or so when we first got home just so they could slowly explore it at their own pace before we went in to spend time with them right but they adjusted pretty quickly and they seem very happy there now when we first opened the door and let them out into the living room it took a while before they decided to step out and they quite cautiously sort of stepped out and then we've got quite an open space in our living room at the moment. We've got a sofa on one end and a TV on the other end and then in between is just empty space. Right. And on this first day, the cats would sort of scamper over from the bathroom, which they know and love, to under the sofa and then they'd kind of look around for a little while and they'd find the spot under the kind of entertainment unit under the TV, and dart over to that, and then be underneath that for a bit. Mm. But they spent very little time in open space until they'd kind of got used to the whole room. Did they tend to stick together, or did they move separately? Uh, a bit of both, you know. They do like being in each other's company, I think, and I think it's reassuring for each of them when the other one is when they know where the other one is. Mm. But they also kind of both got interested by different things and went off to explore them independently. So right, they do a lot of play fighting and things at the moment as well. So they're kind of chasing each other around. And I think the living room is probably the biggest space they've ever had to do that in. Because at the shelter, the room was smaller than our living room and obviously our bathroom is as well. Hmm. So it suddenly gave them a lot more freedom to really run after each other. Yeah. How do you teach them to go to the toilet in the same place? Well, luckily for us... The shelter already basically did that for us. Oh, okay. Cats naturally are fairly fastidious. Like, cats don't like dirt and things, and they clean themselves. Right. And they just instinctively want to cover up their mess. Right. Which is why sort of litter boxes always have that sand stuff in it. I see. So they can sort of scrape it over. So they they are naturally inclined that way anyway. Hmm. But... I don't know what the process of litter training is like because these two are, are two months old and the shelter had already trained them for us by the time they came here. So mm. when they sort of were first exploring the room and they found a box with the sand stuff that is in litter, they're like, oh, this looks like a good spot. I'll, I'll oh, use see. this.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. Have you ever had dogs before or, or other cats?
1: I haven't. No, I've not really had any pets except when I was young, I had a budgie for a while right. or two. Right, right but other than that no i've not really not really had pets i know my dad used to have a dog when he was growing up but
0: do you generally class
1: yourself as a dog person or a cat person i'm definitely a cat person oh okay <laughs> yeah i've wanted cats my whole life i love cats but i've just never had them right i don't know don't know why exactly but i've always kind of got along with cats mm. <laughs> i find that if i go to other friends houses who've got cats they they tend to mm. sort of come to me fairly quickly and you know i don't know i like them they seem to like me well enough so
0: do you class yourself as a cat person or just not a dog person because i'm definitely not a dog person
1: oh really (laughs) no i'm i'm a cat person first but i quite like dogs i mean it's funny because i always thought i didn't like small dogs Hmm. i always thought small dogs are just such a stupid waste (laughs) of time like why why not just get a cat (laughs) right if you're gonna have a dog get a proper dog but Of course, our former co-worker had a dog and used to bring him into Mm. work, which was a toy poodle, Right, which is both a small dog and a very silly small dog. Yeah, it's (laughs) quite ridiculous. But I loved that dog. Mm. I used to go to the back room just so I could play with that dog because I thought it was great. So despite my apparent aversion to small dogs, Mm. I really like that one. Mm. So no, I like dogs. I like dogs as well, but... I'm not anti-dog, but I don't feel the same sort of affinity. Like, a lot of people, and my wife, for example, will see a dog, and including small dogs like chihuahuas and things, and sort of melt a little bit right. and say, Oh, it's so cute. Oh, look, it's doing this cute thing and whatever. Right. And I don't feel that so much. Mm. I don't feel that sort of emotion towards dogs mm. in the same way that I do towards cats. I enjoy playing with dogs like i find that fun mm. but i don't think i feel the oh look at it being cute emotion right so much right, with dogs right. i don't know why but it does leave me cold mm. like i i sometimes feel it's a bit funny that i am that unmoved by this thing
0: right right <laughs> right. that's interesting isn't it because i'm i'm exactly the same as you mm-hmm. i'm a uh, hundred a hundred percent a cat person and exactly the same as you know whenever i'm Whenever there is a cat in a place that I go, I just naturally gravitate towards it and just want to touch it and play with it and, and, you know. Right. And I find cats extremely lovely and cute and all that. And dogs, the, exactly the same, as the exact opposite. It's like I just have no, no interest. Actually, my reasoning was a little bit different. When my mother, when she was very, very young in China, she had a very traumatic experience once when she was a very small girl being chased by a very large dog right and uh, that had really kind of scarred her for life i guess to uh, put it idiomatically in that she has always been very very scared of dogs to the point where you know when if she's going for a walk and there's somebody approaching from in front walking a dog coming towards her she'll often get very, very nervous and scared in that kind of situation, even if the dog is on a leash or right. if it's an older dog that is clearly much more calm and, and less likely to, you know, run up and climb up or anything like that. Mm. So as, you know, as her son, those situations, I think it's interesting. I see it in my own children too, that, you know, the, a new situation, a child will look to the parents to see right. what what the expected reaction is in this situation. And because... My mother was always, you know, oh, oh, it's a dog. Let's let's go on the other side of the street, or you know, like that. Right. That kind of implanted in me this programming that dogs were scary and and you know dogs were big and and they'll they'll come up and they'll lick you and you know they'll sort of climb up onto you and maybe they right. they might right. scratch you a bit and and it's just sort of a kind of a fear. Very, very unjustified because myself, I'd never had any personal right. experiences or negative interactions yeah, at all yeah, with yeah. dogs. But it was just sort of programmed that way from a from a young age. And so, right. yeah, when I got older, it took a a while to realize, and still now too, you know, if if I have a if I go to somebody's house and there's a big dog there, mm. uh, I just sort of it's hard to fight that instinctive feeling that oh, you know, I should be scared. There's like this this large dog walking around.
1: Mm right i I mean i think
0: that is fairly common
1: my sister got bitten i think by a rottweiler Mm. when she was five or six or something right and so she was very scared of dogs for a long time i'm not sure if she still is Mm. but i wouldn't say i'm scared of dogs i don't have that and i quite enjoy it when a dog sort of enthusiastically comes up and climbs up you a bit and you know is is panting and excited and and wants you to pet him and all that right I do enjoy that side of You know, That's what I mean when I say I'm not anti-dog. I'm not like, Mm. that doesn't make me scared and I don't want to avoid that situation. Mm. But I just don't feel that kind of emotional response that a lot of people feel Mm. to dogs, which, which I definitely didn't get from my parents because my dad really likes dogs. He had dogs growing up and when he goes, you know, when we go as a family to somebody's house and there's a dog there, he'll quite often sort of play with it and pet it and really visibly enjoys you know being in the presence of a dog and playing with the dog so mm. if i was going to copy from my parents it would be that i think mm. so f- for whatever reason that that's not it in my case i don't know what the reason is but maybe just because i feel a loyalty to cats mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: it's it's interesting isn't it it's like a uh, japanese people often this is a is a typical safe topic to discuss with people when you're going out for a drink or something is you know are you a cat person or are you a dog person right actually it's interesting when you know when you were saying that dogs seem to lack that basic appeal i actually used to be exactly the same with children
1: Mm. (laughs) yeah a lot of people are
0: yeah i also found i guess maybe is the i'm the younger of two boys in my family and never really had any cousins or any babies around or anything like that so I never really knew how to react with children what to do or Mm -hmm. you know how to how to be with them or anything like that and maybe that's the reason but I also just never really found children sort of cute or appealing or lovely or or precious obviously you understand um, the importance of children and the significance of children and and the, the wonder of children but you don't I just never felt any attraction there at all until I had my own. Right. And I've heard this exact same story recounted from somebody with regard to his dog as well. Right. He said as well that he before he had his own dog, he never really understood what all the fuss was about. Right. And having his own dog from the uh, puppy stage right. was sort of the eye opener. And now, like myself with children now, after having two of my own, you know, now I find all children just extremely, extremely adorable.
1: Right. Yeah, I think that would, that would be the case. And I think, funny enough, for my wife, I think originally is more of a dog person than a cat person. Mm. Uh, this cats thing, she was sort of going along with me originally. But now that we have them, she was saying, you know, I've never really understood other people's cats. But we've had these cats for two days and already i feel like totally connected to them and totally sort of protective and supportive of them and Hmm. like i can guess what they're thinking sort of thing Hmm. and it's it's funny how quickly these things take hold of
0: you Hmm. cats as well you know although they primarily are interested in themselves (laughs) more or less compared to a dog you know who's who's often more um, responsive and more sensitive to people around cats definitely as they get older they definitely do form very very strong connections with the people that they they live with yeah the humans that they live with i should say Mm. Uh, so i'm sure you're going to experience that too what do you feel about the idea of having a cat who only knows indoors
1: yeah it's a it's a funny thing Uh, in america at least there is a very strong push towards indoor cats Mm. all the shelters very strongly recommend that you keep your cat indoors and you don't allow it to go outdoors mm. all the charities recommend it all the shelters recommend it most of the vets seem to recommend it so why would they recommend is that is it a safety thing it's primarily a safety thing yeah there's a lot of dangers outside obviously you know between cars mm. and other animals and just getting lost like there's a lot of potential problems a lot of the animals that go into these shelters have come from some of these situations where they've oh, I see. wandered out and they've got lost and things. And these days, if you have a pet, it's got a microchip embedded in it so that it can be identified if it does get lost. Right. But nevertheless,
0: so I guess if these um, professional institutions are recommending it, it must be fine. But I'm I'm curious about the health aspects,
1: right? And I, when I first heard the idea, I thought it seemed a bit cruel, but apparently not. Apparently, it's it's quite healthy. Some people who have gardens build almost like a hutch, you know, like you have a rabbit hutch in your garden. Mm. They build areas in their garden which is cordoned off so the cat can't leave, but it does get the experience of being outside.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, don't cats need sunlight, like vitamin D?
1: (laughs) They need sunlight, certainly, yeah. We won't be keeping them locked up in our bathroom forever, right? But they can get sunlight by the window. They don't actually have to go outdoors to get that. I
0: guess so. Do you get vitamin D from sunlight behind glass? I think so.
1: Yeah. Really? Hmm. I think I mean if it's polarized glass then no. <laughs> but <laughs> it it's not. So I think no, I'm pretty sure you do. It is interesting. I mean
0: again as uh, the only cat that we had w- when I was growing up in Adelaide was uh, a wild cat and therefore perfectly fine outside. Right. So we had this, you know, we were fortunate to have a very very large garden which uh, he used to enjoy doing all kinds of things in a big area of lawn. And um, just the, the idea of a, an animal being inside and not knowing outside right. is, uh, is, is yeah, somewhat somewhat uh, unfamiliar to me.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, I, I mean, it did seem unusual to me at first too. But it's recommended and we're going to follow that advice and we'll see how it goes. Mm. It is a bit of a worry for us. The front door of our apartment is opens into the kitchen living room area, which is the biggest area in the apartment, right? It's it's a fairly open apart from the bedrooms and the bathroom, the whole thing is open. So we are a little bit worried about how we can prevent them from when they have free roam of the house, how we prevent them from darting out. Right. You know, when we come home and we open the door and that is, there are various approaches that people take trying to discourage them from going near the door by spraying sort of citrus sprays because they don't like the smell or putting aluminium foil because they don't like that either or making an awful sound by the door or going with the positive sort of carrot rather than stick approach of associating the sound of the door opening or the doorbell with there being a treat on the other end of the house. Mm. So whenever they hear that sound, they run in the opposite direction. Oh, that's interesting. So there's various you know bits of training you can do but we're still sort of looking into that, and that's all new to us. So
0: It sounds like... Uh, it's a learning process. From the way you describe the personality of Natsu, it sounds like uh, yeah. that may be an issue when uh, when he gets a bit more used to the. Definitely.
1: I mean, the first time we opened the bathroom door to go in and visit him, he ran straight out and was running around my office. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he's definitely that way inclined, but... Hmm. We'll see how it goes. Did you see the letter I put on Twitter? I'll put a link in the show notes. This is my correspondence with someone from Wizards of the Coast customer support.
0: I did not. So what, what is Wizards of the Coast?
1: Have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Of course.
0: Uh, actually, sorry. No, I have not played Dungeons and Dragons. I've played Advanced Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Okay, well, that's <laughs> what I meant. It, it was called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons for a while. That's what it was called when I started playing it as well. So did you play first edition or second edition? Uh, It was the first edition. Oh, okay. Cool. So Advanced Dungeons & Dragons was a game by TSR Inc., Mm. which was spawned out of Dungeons & Dragons. The the original game was called Dungeons & Dragons, which featured a board and was much more oriented around moving around on the board and and having combat on that board. Right. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons took that notion, but took away the board or made it optional, And had it much more about the the storytelling and the role playing and just describing the scene to each other. The good stuff. Right. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition just sort of clarified some of the rules and and Mm. changed some of them. And I've never played 1st Edition, so I can't really compare them that well. But Mm. 2nd Edition came with an explosion of campaign settings. Right, which were box sets of all different worlds that you could have your adventures in. And they would tell you all about the geography of that world and some of them would have different kinds of races you could play in, different creatures and different kinds of monsters right. and
0: so generally, different characters and so forth. Basically kind of uh, supplemental stuff for the um, Dungeon Master to make the creation of the world and these campaigns and the gameplay a little bit easier to start off. Is that correct?
1: Sort of. Um I I mean, yes, it, it meant that the Dungeon Master didn't do the world creation bit. Right. But I, I wouldn't necessarily say made it easier. It just changes the focus. Okay. So you you have this world already made for you. It's as if instead of having just the core Advanced Dungeons Dragons rule set and then hmm. making up the, the towns and everything yourself, you were to say, well, we're going to use these rules to play the game, but the game is going to be set in Middle Earth. I see. So all this history and all these locations and these particular races of the Hobbits and the Dwarves and the Elves and stuff and their cultures hmm. already exist. I see. And you are going to create new characters and new stories within this pre-existing world. <laughs> it's kind of like middleware. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and that was that was really popular during the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons second edition era, which is when I started playing it Right. in the sort of mid to late 90s. In 1998, 99-ish, uh, TSR was in some financial trouble Hmm. and Wizards of the Coast who make the card game Magic the Gathering, among other things. Ah,
0: okay. I know that.
1: They bought the Dungeons & Dragons franchise from TSR. Okay. I think they bought TSR itself, maybe. TSR went out of business and Wizards of the Coast ended up with Dungeons & Dragons. Right. And they decided to remove the advanced part of the name Hmm. and make Dungeons & Dragons the the name of the advanced game oh, because it had already been over 15 years now bef- since you know the original dungeons and dragons was just a board game right but they didn't reset the numbering so the first product that they released was called dungeons and dragons third edition ah. and i had already kind of stopped playing by this point so i never played third edition i i stopped with second edition right uh, but 3rd Edition came out, 3.5 came out, which just was a revision of 3rd Edition, but apparently a, a big improvement. 4th uh, Edition came out, which is much maligned, and everyone says is uh, that They tried to tune the rules of 4th Edition using computer simulations instead of the traditional just playing lots of games and seeing what was fun. Right. And that, that led it to be a, a very good game if you wanted to play a strategic game by the numbers but a lot of people found it to be a bit cold and less interesting. I see. And then they came out with 5th edition three years ago, mm. just over three years ago. And that was running up to my 30th birthday. And I saw that it was coming out and I got quite excited and I decided to buy Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition in the run-up to my birthday. And we played a game of it for my... That was what I did for my 30th. Mm. So it's like my nice big birthday party was this nostalgic trip back to dungeons and dragons which i hadn't played since the last time i played actually was on my 18th birthday right so it was an interesting sort of uh, 12 exactly 12 years later right was it good uh, yeah it's great i really like fifth edition i think it's good the only thing that i think is a bit sad is that all these expansions that existed for second edition they've all kind of disappeared mm. and been consolidated so they mainly focus on the forgotten realms world which is one of the most popular worlds for second edition games to be set in, but is a very sort of, is a fairly standard fantasy based setting. Right. And some of the sort of crazier worlds that you got in second edition, like Dark Sun and Planescape, uh, two of my favorites, those don't really exist anymore, which is unfortunate. Mm. But the actual, the way the game feels strikes a good balance between the rules but still focusing on the story and the the kind of you know you can choose how much you want to move towards a story based game or a by the books rules based game. Right. And it's you know it's fairly well balanced. I think so. I'm I'm pretty happy with it. There was a problem though with the f- initial printing of these books, which is that the binding was very bad on some of the first players' handbooks that they printed right. three years ago when the new edition came out. And right. obviously, I bought one of the first because uh, I bought it basically on release, right? So I bought one of this first printing run. Hmm. And so within a couple of months, I found that big chunks of the book had, had fallen out. Right. And I was quite upset about this, but I sort of struggled on and sort of, at times it was useful because we only had this one player's handbook to share between us. And so if two people wanted to read different sections of the book at once, <laughs> I could <laughs> take out this chunk and pass them one section. Handy, But it, it did make it annoying to flick through the book, you know? <laughs> So anyway, that, that was three years ago and I've sort of been quite busy moving to America and things since then. So I hadn't really thought about it. But I heard recently hmm. that Wizards of the Coast were actually fairly good about dealing with this problem because it hadn't just been me. It was a widespread problem in this initial printing run. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, you know, it was three years ago and I bought the book. I imported it to Japan from America. Hmm. So I'm a bit of a dodgy case and... I don't think I stand much of a chance here, hmm. but I'll try writing them an email anyway, and I'll put some photos of of the book hmm. and just say, you know, I've heard that you're accepting returns of these and, and replacing them, so, uh, you know, would that be possible? And within a day, I got a reply from, from their support team, and not only did they offer to return to send me a new book they didn't even ask me to send this one back right they're just sending me a new brand new copy of the book Hmm. no questions asked but he sent me this whole message in character (laughs) 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 it's like i am adam knight of the rose or something like that and you say (laughs) those blaggards have managed to destroy your book that's terrible i will ask the clerics of product return to forge <laughs> you a new one and things like that and, <laughs> and from anyone else i would think oh this is such corporate nonsense right. like that sort of thing would really annoy me right but from the people making dnd i loved yeah, it that's I great like, this is brilliant so i sent them a reply also in character <laughs> That's fantastic. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that correspondence because I thought it was very funny. And they have now uh, sent me the tracking number for my new copy and it will be arriving this Friday. So I'm very excited. Three years later and they're willing to replace my my player's handbook, which, you know, okay, it's their fault that the original sort of fell apart a little bit. Right. But it's absolutely my fault that I left it three years before contacting them. Right, right, right. Uh, so I'm, you know, I would have been... Not particularly surprised if they'd said no, sorry, we can't do that. So yeah, that's great. Just very good customer service, and I love the fact that they decided to do the whole thing in character as well. Yeah,
0: that's uh, that's fantastic. I mean, that that on (laughs) on so many levels, you know, it shows that the person who's working there. I mean, I'm sure they don't have like this binder of of uh, customer support policy that says that you know, appendix three section A says that you must respond to these inquiries in character. Uh, I'm sure that right. just evidence that the person who's working there is just having a good time.
1: Right. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it, it could be because, you know, this is a known issue and a lot of people have written in with this problem. It's entirely possible that they have a template that is written mm. like this. But even even so, the fact that... Even then, I don't care. The fact that they sort of try to do that, that they want to have that kind of connection and a, a little bit of fun. Yeah. You know, I, I just think it's great. Yeah. so and that's um I was very happy with that. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a, it's fantastic the power that uh, really good customer service where it's it feels very personal it can actually have you know it can take a negative and make you know two or three positives out of it.
1: <laughs> right, definitely, yeah. Because I'm so excited to receive my new copy now I'm and sure. I really want to sort of get on and and play another game and Oh, and the, finally, the Japanese translation of the Player's Handbook is coming out this December. Oh, really? Wow. So it's taken quite a while. because At first, they weren't sure if they were going to release a Japanese edition. Mm. Uh, D&D is a little less sort of famous and, and popular in Japan mm. than it is here. But they decided to do a localization, which is great player's handbook comes out this december and then the dungeon master's guide and the monstrous manual will follow in the new year so i think
0: i think it's i think it's fair to say that we are in the middle of a a little bit of a i guess a renaissance for board games and for you know tabletop gaming in general i think that um
1: it's true and D in particular mm, not least because it's featured quite heavily in stranger things the netflix series right and so a lot of people have been introduced to it for the first time through that mm. I didn't play... I mean, I played AD&D with
0: my brother and his friend, uh, I think, like, once, twice. So they're not not that familiar with that, but uh, the one right. role playing game that I I think I can recall playing also with my brother and his friend a few more times was the GURPS system. Oh, G- GURPS. G-U-R-P-S, cursed. What is that generic universal role play system? Yeah, that's right. Or something yeah, like, like that. Cursed right. with like the most awful name. <laughs> this is back before you know branding was a thing. Where <laughs> these days you could never get away. Well, actually, who knows? I mean, you can get away with names like Google and Yahoo and Twitter these days. So I suppose maybe uh, GURP GURPS could uh, still uh, survive on in the current climate but yes gURPS was basically a very very simplified uh, role-playing system which was designed to be generic in the sense that you could transplant any kind of context or setting or genre on top of it right and it would you know it would just take care of the basics of interactions and uh, characters and their their statistics and stuff like that and attributes and equipment and then uh, the it's up to the the GM, the Game Master, I believe it was called, with GURPS. Right, yeah, to, it's fairly common. To basically sculpt, that whether you want to have it science fiction or you want to have it fantasy or current world or whatever, it's all, right. it's all up to you. And, uh, yeah, so the, the my brother had all these really cool books, the GURPS. There was these sort of expansion sets, again, kind of like what you were describing of uh, AD&D 2nd Edition where right. basically the system is here, they don't change the system that much, but you know here is some additional supplemental assistance if you're wanting to have you know this kind of uh, setting or this kind of setting. And he had various you know there's some science fiction ones, but one of the more memorable ones that I used to love looking through the book of was the it was called Auto hmm. and Auto was appropriate for my brother and myself at the time because we were. Well into an Apple II game called AutoDuel. Oh,
2: okay.
0: AutoDuel is kind of like a a Mad Max, like the original Mad Max, sort of dystopian post-nuclear desert warfare, oil warfare kind of setting. Mm. The original AutoDuel game on the Apple II was fantastic. It was kind of like a top-down driving game on this rather fictionalized map of north america Hmm. so you have these different north american cities in there for example detroit and there was like syracuse and i can't remember the names of the other ones but they're all kind of in different locations and not geographically accurate intentionally right and then you know you drive through the the wilderness and as you're doing that of course you are at risk of being attacked by other cpu controlled oil pirates i guess you call them Mm -hmm. people basically trying to shoot your car and steal it for parts and stuff like that and then when you get to the cities you can upgrade you can buy parts for your uh, car to upgrade it or you can buy different types of cars like uh, trucks or or motorcycles or things like that and then on top of all this was a, a larger story like a mission which if you go into the bars in the cities and, and sit there and talk to people, they'll tell, give you hints about things that you're supposed to do and there was a bigger game to it as well. Mm. So that was Auto Duel on the Apple tool. It's a great game. So the GURPS role-playing version was also great and it was uh, basically taking the GURPS system and then just giving the Game Master information about easy ways to... Create vehicles and vehicle statistics and vehicle attributes and things like that.
1: Right. Did you Did
0: you ever try gurps
1: No, I never. I mean, the the place that I used to get all my role play books, which was the Model Center, in Stratford upon Avon, which had sort of half role play books and things, and the other half was like Warhammer forty thousand, Warhammer fantasy, and another sort of model. But that's why it was called the Model Center. But mm. uh, and upstairs was a comic book shop so good sort of nerd triumvirate in there Mm. but uh, (laughs) uh, they always had a lot of the gurps books but i never played those Mm. i did play uh, in terms of sort of systems that worked across uh, games did you ever encounter the world of darkness books no or games no i didn't those are by white wolf publishing and they are things like vampire the masquerade werewolf the apocalypse mage the ascension changeling the dreaming <laughs> uh things like that right and they are they are all actually set within one world they're not a generic system that you can play in a lot of different worlds right but the idea is that this is a sort of gothic mirror of present day modern earth right where there really are vampires and there are werewolves and there are all these things and they each used a system called the D10 system, whereas Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, you would get these little boxes of six different types of dice Hmm. if you count the D100, which is just a D10 with an extra zero on it, as a sixth one, Uh, five or six different types of dice. And you would have to use different dice for different things, and depending on your class, like you hit points are either using a D4 if you're a mage or a D6 if you're a priest or whatever. In this, you used a D10 for everything, and you just varied the number of D10s you rolled. I see. But those were interesting because they were a little bit more adult than a lot of the Dungeons & Dragons games that we played. I mean, Dungeons & Dragons is very flexible, so it can be as adult or as sort of right. happy-go-lucky as you like. But with with Vampire the Masquerade, for example, it's very political. Mm. You had these different factions of different groups of vampires. You had you know, different belief systems and... They had a sort of hierarchy and structure, and there were rules about not revealing this—the existence of vampires—to humans. And then there were these these two overarching groups: were the, the Masquerade and the Sabbat. Where the Masquerade were the main groups that the players would play, you know, which had all these different factions within them, but still all believed in this common idea that, in order for vampires to continue, it was paramount that they don't reveal themselves to humans and they try and coexist alongside humans Mm. whereas the sabbat had another few function uh, factions underneath it and they were sort of the the bad guys generally they believed that vampires were superior to humans and humans were were just meat and Mm. you know they should be trodden down and farmed or whatever right and and you, you could have these quite political stories where you're there's, you know, there's a lot more talking than fighting and things like that. Right. Or you could have quite combat-based stories as well. But, you know, they were very, and then sometimes you would have links with the other, like the werewolf, the apocalypse, vampires and werewolves were always at war. Hmm. So that was just a great world. And they, they also they released a series of books called Something by Night. So you would have like Tokyo by Night, oh, I see. or London by Night, or New York by Night, and it would be an expansion that would give you all information about that particular city. Right. And so it would be based on a, you know, real world city, but it would tell you which vampire is in charge is the prince of that city. Right. In Vampire the Masquerade, when you go to a new city, you're supposed to first present yourself to the the vampire prince of that city. And then, you know, they will link you up with the people you need to talk with and who the leader of your faction in that city is and stuff like that. Hmm. So... And they would have sort of link. You know, these things were all quite unified, so that these things would be interconnected. Right, the London by night and the New York by night. The, the princes of these two cities know each other, and sometimes there would be things going on in the story that impacted another city. Hmm. Uh, so it was all very interesting. And then the live role play got very popular with Vampire. Hmm. So with the live role play, it would be set. Wherever you were doing it, right? Live role play, LARP is where you actually dress up in character oh, and see. you're actually acting out the actions, right? Okay. Rather than sitting around a table, things like that. Right. And the funny thing about that is you would go, you know, if you went to London to play the vampire live role play there, it was London and it had, you know, a prince who was a player who was in charge of the vampire society in London. Oh, I see. And they would actually hook you up with people. and sometimes these different groups organizing these live roleplay sessions in different cities would collaborate on the stories. Wow. And so they, they would have they would know that somebody is going to be visiting from Bristol, for example. Right. And the DMs of the London Live Roleplay Group and the, the Bristol Live Roleplay Group would talk beforehand and decide how the stories are going to be linked. And it was very sort of Real in a in a way, which is quite interesting. Wow, it's like a real-world MMO.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. My my, uh, it's quite possible. My brother may have had a few of those books. I, my only exposure to role-playing games, other than playing a few times, was my brother used to enjoy collecting the rule books for role-playing systems.
1: Right. Yeah. And
0: the ones that I used to love looking through, I just love looking at the the artwork inside these books. The um, Robotech one he had, mm-hmm. which had some fantastic concept art in it and uh, mecha art. Also, uh, Star Wars, of course, the Star Wars role playing.
1: Oh yeah, I never played that, but I remember that. I
0: never played it, but I looked through those books so many times because they had such cool pictures of the you mm. know the Y wing and the A wing and the things that you don't really ever get a chance to properly look at in the movie that much. You can see like these nice blueprints of these different kinds of ships and and the other one was one called palladium Mm. that book was full of really cool pictures of uh you know the different kinds of fantasy weapons and flails and morning stars and and all these kinds of funny eclectic weapons that a uh, 10 year old like me at the time would would have no clue
1: about (laughs) yeah palladium is another one that i flick through in the shop quite a lot but i never actually bought Mm. the only other one i think that i actually played a bit is Shadowrun have you heard of that
0: uh no wait a moment why do i know the name shadow that's a game isn't it shadowrun they
1: made a video game afterwards but it's originally a role play game okay and it's a, a science fiction one i think you'd like it i really want to play it again because i can hardly remember it i played it a little bit with some people i never actually dm'd a shadowrun game but i was a player hmm. and we should do it yeah it's a really interesting setting i'm interested to sort of read back on it now i mean i think they've released new editions i think they're up to the fifth edition or sixth edition of that now as well right but at the time that i was playing it the internet was really i mean this was like 1996 97 right so the internet was just starting to become right a thing you know that there would be internet cafes that you could go to and it was you know, reasonably common for people to have the internet in their own house, but you still had to dial in with a modem and things right. like that. Right. It wasn't all BBSs and things like that. So Shadowrun seemed much more futuristic mm. and sci-fi. The idea of you would sort of jack into this network and then you would be right. in the network and doing things and you had all hackers and stuff. And there was there was a sense of being sort of jacked into the network and then being in the real world and stuff. A bit like the Matrix, I think. Mm. I, you know, I'm not remembering. it. I've got a very hazy memory of it. But that notion of there being this sort of parallel world, which is in, in the computer, which is like an inter- interconnected network. Right. And the thing is, all of that is just so much more real now, mm. right? I mean, the Internet, as it stands now is not far off being a kind of parallel world that is an interconnected network. I mean, we're not all jacking into it with VR or anything. Right. But I wonder whether going back to the version that I used to play, which I think was second edition as well, Mm. might have been first edition, I'm not sure. I'd probably recognize it if I saw the front cover. I wonder whether that would seem dated now. Possibly. Because the world that we inhabit has changed so much possibly
0: because i mean now you know with um ghost in the shell and tron of course for tron obviously in 82 was one of the very earliest incarnations of that whole paradigm right but the idea oh, you know jacking into the network you know that kind of also of course william gibson right now possibly yeah maybe not so fresh anymore but as a role-playing game of course you know even if the, the setting is a little bit cliched. I mean, look at what D&D does for a cliched fantasy setting.
1: Right, and it's, it's kind of almost nostalgic now. I mean, maybe the newer editions deal with this, you know. Maybe the newer editions sort of create this science fiction setting mm. on the basis of, of where we are now. But be really interesting. there is something kind of nostalgic about going back to that kind of 80s vision of the future, as it were, yeah. Love it. That kind of
0: retro futurism is uh, one of my yeah. all-time favorite artistic hobbies. Really. Yeah. Just before we leave um, role-playing games, I wanted to ask you, for the benefit of people listening who've never tried a role-playing game and are curious about it. Mm. So we won't bother with you know what a role-playing game is because I'm sure most people have at least that much of an understanding. But what would you recommend if if you know if we have a listener who's really curious and, and enthusiastic and and would like to try out role-playing? What would you
1: recommend that such a person do to get started? D and D, definitely, hands down. I think the fifth edition of D and D, which I think is good. I haven't played it nearly as much as second edition, so I can't really say. You know, I don't. I don't have a as detailed a critique of it as I. You know, as I know what's good and bad about second edition, mm. but uh, fifth edition is enjoyable to play but the rules are much more accessible than second edition rules. So it's, you know, fairly easy to get into. Yeah, that
0: I imagine would be a concern because somebody who's never tried role-playing games, you know, you look at these big, thick manuals and you sort of think, well, you know, if I'm going to get a few mates around, have a few drinks, hey, let's try D&D. It doesn't seem like, you know, something that could be done so casually and easily like that. It seems like there's a fair amount of commitment to learning everything and understanding it and then creating a campaign for your for your friends to play in. Is that fair?
1: Well, there is, but 5th edition has what's called a starter set, which is a box set, which has a very slimmed-down book for the players and one for the DM, Hmm. and comes with a pre-written adventure. Oh, I see. So it's got everything you need to get started. It's got enough rules for the players to play this first adventure. It doesn't go into full detail on all the magic and all the things that happen at higher levels once you've been playing a long campaign and you've leveled up your character a lot. Right. But it has everything you need to get started and the basic rules of combat and all of that. And it's got everything the DM needs to run an adventure without too much preparation. Mm. And I think it might even have some pre-generated characters. So although it does tell you everything you need to make characters, if you don't want to spend the time... Uh, which can take, you know, it can be a big job rolling up your first character. Yeah, If you don't want to do that and you just want to dive straight in, it is possible to do. So I would say get that starter set. I'll put a link in the show notes and go from there. Hmm. But then, you know, if you enjoy it, then you would need to get just one copy of the player's handbook to share between a group is kind of enough. Everyone doesn't need to own a copy. It's helpful if you own a copy because you can read it at home and sort of look up the rules and and make your own character before you go and things like that. But you don't need it. You can just have one copy which you will share. And then The Dungeon Master's Guide is another big sort of hefty book. Mm. And that's really helpful if you want to be writing adventures and coming up with your own campaign settings and things like that. But it's not essential to get started, hmm. so you could do without it for the first little bit if you wanted to, or if you want to, if you want to dive straight in, you could get the DMG and the Monsters Manual straight away and just start writing adventures. And The Monsters Manual will give you a whole bestiary of of creatures to choose from to put in your adventures. So one other thing that you can uh, have a look
0: into if you get into it is. I don't know the exact name, uh, but there are a few really good apps for iPhone and for iOS, iPad and other tablets too, I'm sure. And websites, I believe too, which can actually help you with sound effects and ambient music for your role-playing campaigns. Right,
1: right. Yeah, I've seen some of those. Uh, There's also a couple of apps which are good for managing your, your character sheets and things, although I still kind of tend to stick to paper for those. Right. And there is a, there's an app that I quite like for a dice-rolling app if you're playing in a place where it's inconvenient to carry all these different dice with you right. or if you just haven't bought the dice yet. This app is quite good because it looks... It's modelled after the calculator app that comes on the iPhone. Okay. But it's got buttons on it for all the different kinds of dice. And so you can just put in, like, D6 plus 4 right. and things like that, whatever the roll is that you have to make or... 2d4 where that means two four-sided dice plus seven for example right and then you can keep pressing the roll button and it will re-roll will generate the random numbers for whatever the dice are and then it will do the other you know additions or subtractions whatever you might need to
0: do that sounds like a fun app to have even if you aren't going to be doing role playing
1: yeah it's a good because i I was looking for dice rolling apps and so many of them make the awful mistake i know what you're going to say of (laughs) trying to make a 3D yeah. simulation <laughs> of dice. And they're all like yeah. made in Unity. You know, there's nothing wrong with Unity, but they've they've made this whole little world, which is just a box in Unity. Right. And they've 3D modeled all the different kinds of dice. Right. And then you choose the dice and you throw them and they roll around. You sh- and it's so... Sp- you shake the phone. Yeah, and, and yeah. It's, it just winds me up because not only is it like really slow and annoying to use, But it's not very good randomness either, right? Because it's, (laughs) you know, randomness on a computer is hard and there are various algorithms to try and do it in a good way that will give you a good distribution across the various values that you might get. Mm. And Unity's physics simulation is not one of them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I I hate all those. But this app is just quite minimal and... Looks like a calculator and is useful, and so I like it. Yeah. It has adverts on it by default, which are annoying, but you can pay to have the adverts taken out. Let's so pay. It's good, so I'll I'll put a, a link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's. I was just. Gonna, I knew where you were going there. That I knew that was going to be something where you like shake the phone and then the the the, the, the die rolls around in on the screen and yeah. It's like at that point, you know, you may as well just be using a real thing. I mean, yeah. Is that why hmm. you want to have a dice app so that you can see the dice there on the screen and feel familiar? No, the reason—I'm sure there are more practical reasons why you'd want to have a dice app as opposed to an actual small block that you could just put in your pocket. Right.
1: I mean, there are. There's. There's something fun about the physical act of rolling dice, right? And that's why I think I would prefer to use real dice than to use a dice app. But if you're going to use an app, I want something that makes the best use of the medium, yeah. right? That yeah. takes, okay, this is an iPhone, it's got a touchscreen, it's got this much space. And I'm making, you know, essentially a random number generator for it. What is the most useful hmm. way I could present this? And the person who made this app, I think it's a really good idea. Just make it look like a calculator and allow you to enter the same formulae in the same format that it's written in the rulebook so you just look in the ro- rulebook it says you know fireball 3d6 plus 2 or whatever right. and you just type 3d6 2 and then just press the roll button as many times as you like i mean it's you know i think that that is what clever design is not just blindly mimicking the the real thing <laughs>
0: yeah well this is another topic for another another time i think but the uh, the line between
1: skeuomorphism as
0: the uh, uh as the trendy kids like to call it which is basically designing something to look realistic uh and uh flat design i think this discussion is kind of uh slightly cooled down recently it was very very big back when uh apple's ios 7 i think it was came out which was all did away with all of the realistic looking graphics right. for the interface and, and made it all kind of flat and and uh minimal So that's another, that's a topic for another time.
1: Yes.